start a new series this morning, so I hope you have a Bible. If not, there's one close to you in the pew, or maybe you can pull it up on your phone. I'd like you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. Our study of Psalms is in the books, and uh, we're moving on. We're going to spend about three weeks talking about Thanksgiving, specifically three weeks talking about how the Apostle Paul gave thanks and how that might help us to be more thankful people as we get ready for the Thanksgiving holiday. A few weeks back, I told you when we looked at Psalm 100, Old 100, I said, this is going to be a a short preview, Psalm 100, of the series coming up in November. In Psalm 100, there's a note above the uh, first verse that says, this is a psalm for giving thanks. It's the only psalm with that designation. And what's interesting in Psalm 100 is that the psalmist is not at all focused on things. So often when we try to be thankful or, or give thanks, we think about the things in our life. And Psalm 100 doesn't mention any things, any gifts. It only focuses on the giver. And what we're going to see in Paul's prayers for the church in Corinth and over the next few weeks, two different churches, is that Paul does something very, very similar as he gives thanks for these people in his life. And so I hope that this series can sort of recalibrate our hearts and our minds as we get ready for the Thanksgiving holiday. I want to start off, before we read out of 1 Corinthians, I want to just give you a little bit of background information uh, that will help you understand the relationship between Paul and Corinth. And so I'm just going to start with the city of Corinth itself. It was a large, wealthy, cosmopolitan seaport in the ancient world. In about 146 BC, the Romans came marching in to this Greek city and they destroyed it. They conquered it, they flattened it, leveled it all the way to the ground. And then about 100 years later, they rebuilt it as a Roman city, not a Greek city, but a Roman city. And they made this city, Corinth, the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. So this was a very important city, lots of business coming through uh, the port here at Corinth. And along with that, you ought to know that the Corinthians were known throughout the Roman Empire for their immorality. And I'm not specifically talking about the people who went to First Baptist Corinth, although when you read the letter, you realize they had issues of their own. I'm just talking about the Corinthians in general. There were several hundred thousand people who lived there in Paul's day, and it was just sort of a common knowledge. Everybody knew Corinth was like Las Vegas, right? If you want to be wild and go crazy, go to Corinth, and there's all sorts of things going on there that will scratch any itch that you may have. In fact, in the ancient world, there was a term. It was called to Corinthianize, and it meant to act like a wild person and to do the things that you might do when you go to Corinth. And so people knew about this town. It was a seaport. There were a lot of sailors coming in and out of that town, and so you can imagine the things that took place. A very wicked city. Paul stopped in Corinth on his second missionary journey, and he stayed for about 18 months. He usually didn't stay that long in many of the places that he went, but he stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. And the story behind that is kind of interesting. You can read in the the book of Acts, right before he got to Corinth, he stopped in Athens, which was the intellectual hub of the ancient world. And he got to go to the Areopagus, and they invited him to speak. And uh, he stood up there to speak, and he talked about the resurrection. And basically... A few people believed in Jesus. Most people just laughed Paul out of town. Paul wasn't used to that, right? At this point in the game, Paul is used to being run out of town. He's used to being thrown in prison. He's used to revival breaking out. But what he's not used to is everybody just sort of laughing at him and being really sort of indifferent and uninterested 
in what he was talking about. And so we imagine that he was a little bit discouraged when he left Athens, and the next stop that he made was in Corinth. And look what we read in the book of Acts here. That says Acts 17, it should be Acts 18, that's my typo. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, go on speaking, and do not be silent. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. See, he's just been laughed out of one town, and immediately you can read the verses that, that come before this. He faces stiff opposition in Corinth, and he's just kind of discouraged. And so one night, the Lord speaks to him in a vision, and he says, look, don't give up. Don't be discouraged that they laughed you out of town there. Don't be discouraged that they're trying to stand against you here. I want you to stay. I want you to teach. I have many people in this town, and your job is to preach and to teach and to be faithful in that. And so he did it for about 18 months. One of the things we know is that a few of the people who joined the church in Corinth were people of means, but most of the folks who were saved in Corinth and became members of the church were just ordinary, regular, old folks, people just like you and I. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's not really a flattering verse, but it's just sort of the reality in Corinth. You guys don't come from the upper echelons of society. You're just sort of regular old people. That was most of the folks who made up this church. And so Paul jumps in and he gives them a short greeting and then immediately he prays for this church and he describes the kind of prayer that he has been praying for them and that's our passage this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting in verse 4. This is Paul speaking to the church. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we meet this morning and as we think about this prayer that Paul prayed 2,000 years ago, this prayer that your Spirit inspired and put into the Holy Scriptures, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts that you would teach us this morning how to pray and how to be thankful in our prayers. Father, we acknowledge this morning that your grace is an amazing, amazing thing beyond full comprehension. But as we think about your grace in the life of the Corinthians and as we think about your grace in our lives this morning, make us thankful people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Really, I just want to ask a couple of simple questions this morning and try to give you the answers from the text, and then we'll end up, and I'll give you a few thoughts of application at the end. Question one is obvious if we just read the passage. Why did Paul give thanks for this church in Corinth? And the answer is, straight out of the text, he gave thanks because of the grace of God that had been given to them in Jesus. Right out of verse four. Seems like an obvious answer. 
But if you know something about the church in Corinth, it is kind of a remarkable answer. And it's remarkable that Paul is praying for them and giving thanks in any way, shape, or form. Because this is a difficult church for Paul. This is a church that really was nothing but drama. You know churches like that. I hope that people don't think of our church that way. I hope that you haven't experienced our church that way. But I know places like that. It's just absolutely nonstop, nothing but drama. And that was Corinth. They had fights over who the best preacher was or wasn't. And they argued about that. And they sort of formed little teams and and sided against each other. They condoned immorality, meaning there was sin in the church, it was open, it was flagrant, it was unrepentant, everyone knew about it. And it's not just that they were too afraid to confront it, it's that they condoned it and they said, eh, it's no big deal. We just want to be open-minded. We just want to be accepting of anybody and anything. And they condoned that sort of immorality. There was issues of sexual immorality. There was a giant temple uh, with prostitutes in Corinth and there were issues with the members in that temple. There were issues with church members suing each other in court, having disagreements. They couldn't settle them. They couldn't get on the same page together, so they brought lawsuits, civic lawsuits, and sued each other in public court. There was issues of people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper while other people had nothing to eat at the Lord's Supper. I just can't even wrap my brain around that scenario. I mean, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that in a few weeks as we think about Thanksgiving on the 20th, you just can't imagine some people not being allowed to participate, other people participating so much that they're drunk at the Lord's Supper. As Paul describes their worship services, it's complete and total chaos, just a free-for-all of expression, anything goes, no restraints, no order, no dignity, nothing. And he opens the letter, and instead of like inserting a big sigh, like, oh, Corinth, you guys. He says, I thank God for you. Not because of who you are, but because of the grace that God has given you. The grace of God in their life changed the way Paul saw them. And listen, the grace of God in our lives ought to change the way that we see each other. Look what Paul said to them up in chapter 1, verse 2. This is how he addresses them. To the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. And I just put in bold up on the screen the three words I want you to think about. Instead of saying to those who are dramatic and problem people and you get on my nerves and you just exasperate me, he says, you guys are a church. The Greek word there is ekklesia, literally the ones who have been called out. Paul says, you guys are a church. You have been called out of the darkness that you knew into the light of the gospel. God's done that in your life. He says, you've been sanctified. A lot of times we hear the word sanctified and we think only about the process where we become more holy, like I'm growing in my sanctification. And the Bible talks about sanctification like that. But right here, Paul's not talking about the process of sanctification. He's talking about the position of sanctification. And what he literally says is, God has set you guys apart. He's taken you from where you were and he's moved you over and he has something for you to do. You're useful to him. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart for something noble. And he says to him, you guys are saints. If you paid attention to the news recently, you know the process, or maybe you've heard about the process that Mother Teresa posthumously went through to become a saint. 
And in some faith traditions, it's very tedious and very difficult and almost impossible to be recognized as a saint. First, you have to die. Second, you have to have miracles attributed to you. They have to go back and prove that you perform certain miracles. And you have to have a, a tribunal meet and a council and they examine you and discuss it and pray about it and think about it. And then the Pope has to be on your side and approve it. And after all of that, you can be declared a saint in some faith traditions. In the biblical tradition, all you have to do is have faith in Jesus Christ. That he lived for you and he died for you and that his righteousness is now your righteousness because he took your sin on the cross. And literally what Paul says to them is you guys are holy ones. Not holy because you're really good people. Holy because God sees you that way through Christ. This is just remarkable to me. I don't want you to miss this. Why did he give thanks for this church? It's not because they were fun to be around. It's not because they helped him to sleep easy at night. It's not because they were just easygoing and didn't have any problems. They were nothing but drama. But he writes this letter and he says, I give thanks for you. I am thankful for you because of the grace of God in your life. He's called you out. He set you apart. And he sees you as holy. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Christ has done for you. Second question, why was he so thankful for this grace? Let's detail it out as he talks about it in the text. First answer is this, the Corinthians had been spiritually enriched. Verse five, in every way you were enriched in him. That same word enriched in other contexts in the ancient world is used for money, cash, gold. You have a lot of it, you've been enriched. And Paul says to these people, you've been enriched. And you sort of scratch your head and you go back and you say, wait a minute, not many of them were wise and not many were powerful and not many of them were noble birth. It's not like they had large bank accounts, but Paul says, because of the grace of God that you've experienced, you have been made rich. Now I know that you don't think that you're a wealthy person. I also know, just like you know, I could give you world statistics. We've talked about this before on Sunday morning. I could give you world statistics about how poor people are over there and how rich we are over here. And you would say, okay, you know, on a global scale, I guess I'm kind of rich. I guess I see what you're saying, yes. But the reality is day in and day out, you don't feel super rich. And I'm not going to try to convince you this morning on a monetary level that you are. I just want you to understand, Paul wrote a letter to a church of regular people, not noble people, not philosophers, not powerful leaders and government folks, just regular old people. And he says, you have been enriched. You've got to realize that you have immense wealth that you have received. I think this is why Jesus, when he's talking to the disciples and he's trying to explain to them what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says a lot of different things, but one of the things he says is, look guys, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a treasure in a field, a treasure. And this guy, he's digging in the field and he finds this treasure and the treasure is so valuable, so rich that he covers it up and in his joy, he goes home to sell everything that he can sell. He liquidates his entire estate just so he can buy that one field because he knows that in it, there's something of supreme value. It's a treasure. And I think that's why Jesus said, listen, guys, the kingdom of heaven, what I have come to bring 
into your midst. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of surpassing value that this, this merchant goes and he finds this pearl and he's willing to sell everything that he owns and to give up everything else that he owns to obtain this one thing. He wants the treasure. And Paul says, you guys have it. You have been enriched. This is one of those places in the Bible where words are very important and the tense of words and, and the, the grammar here is very important. Paul doesn't say, you guys have made yourself rich. He doesn't say, you've enriched yourselves. He says, you have been passively enriched. You can't do this for yourself. God has done this for you. He's given you this spiritual inheritance that is beyond imagining what it's worth. And in our brains, we just have a hard time with that. We think, yeah, I want Jesus in my life, but I don't know that we walk around thinking, aware of the fact, I have been given the greatest, most valuable treasure that's ever existed, that ever will exist. It's mine. I have it. Paul says, look, I'm thankful for you guys because of God's grace in your life and God's grace has enriched you. Here's the second answer. Why is he thankful for this grace? It's because they've received spiritual gifts. Verse seven, you are not lacking any spiritual gift. The you there in verse seven is a plural you, meaning he's not pointing fingers at individuals, but he's sort of saying to the whole congregation, y'all, you guys, you all, have been gifted. Here's something kind of cool you miss in the English translations. Look at this. The word gift in Greek is the word charisma. And the word grace in Greek is the word charis. They're connected. They come from the same root. They have the same meaning. So when Paul says you have gifts, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. What he's really saying to them is, God has graced you, he's gifted you in so many ways. Not only has he saved you from your sins, but he's given you all of these different gifts. He's gonna tease this out in chapter 12. You should go read it this afternoon. One of the things he says is that every one of you is important in the church. Every single one of you. You've all been gifted, you've all been graced, and God has something for you to do here. You're like... A body, he says. And you need a toe, a big toe and a little toe, and all the ones in between. You need a leg, and you need a liver in there, and you need a heart thumping and beating, and you need a head on. You need all the parts to function as the body. All of you, as God has gifted you, graced you, are needed. Here's another thing he says God has gifted you, or literally, God has graced you for the good of each other, for the common good. He didn't just save you and give you these gifts. He says you're not lacking in any gift. He didn't give you those gifts just so you could hoard it. He gave you that gift for the good of your church family. Listen, when you think about finding a church home, some of you, this is your church home. Some of you, you're thinking about where's my church home gonna be? Some of you, you're visiting, you're out of town, whatever. When you think about where am I gonna go to church, you really ought to have two questions in your mind. Question one, am I going to hear the truth and I'm going to be led in genuine worship? Yes or no? Question two, will I be encouraged and challenged and given opportunity to use my gift for the common good? 
Those two questions, if you can answer yes to both of those questions, you found a good church. Will I hear the truth and will I be led in genuine worship? Will I be encouraged and challenged and moved to use my gift for the common good? Let me give you an example of what this looks like in the life of our church. You ready for this? Light the night. Got a bucket of chicken and the kernel. You got my son who came as a surfer. How great is it? Halloween party and you show up in shorts and a t-shirt. Some of you guys thought the Sieglers were bumblebees. You need to get your eyes checked. They are not bumblebees. Pac-Man. Look it up if you don't know what Pac-Man is. Bumblebees. Come on. Tyler is Tyler. Came in himself. (laughs) We even had the Donald. So look. Here's how this works in our church, right? A couple nights ago, we had a lot of folks on our parking lot. We want to do something as a blessing to the community, as an outreach to the community. We want people to know that we care about folks in this town and we welcome them here. So some of you guys brought candy. You just brought candy up. We had piles of candy in the office. Some of you guys came up early and you hauled stuff outside, uh, tables and chairs. Some of you guys came... And uh, you planned games. And then some of you didn't plan the games, but you worked the games. You sat out there by a trunk and all those, you know, snotty-nosed kids wanting a Snickers bar came up. And you sat there all night and you smiled at them. You said, I love you guys. You're so glad you're here. Let's play a game. You could care less about those dopey little games, but you did it and you did it with a smile on your face. Some of you guys helped kids make cupcakes and decorate cupcakes. Some of you guys stayed afterwards and helped us take trash out and pick all the stuff up that we needed to pick up. Some of you came up early and wrapped hot dogs. What a boring job, but you came up and you wrapped hot dogs and you put popcorn in little baggies. Every part works together. And at the end of the night, your church staff looks at each other and we say, hey, that was pretty easy. That was great, right? I can tell you, I have plenty of friends who work in churches that would do an event like that and they would say that was exhausting, we had to do everything. We were da 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 And you guys come right along the body, body of Christ. Every person does a job, big jobs, little jobs, jobs that we noticed, jobs that we didn't notice. And every part works together, and every gift matters, and it's all for the common good. And Paul says, look, I'm thankful that you guys have been gifted in this way. He's thankful for that. Here's the last answer. Why is Paul grateful for this grace in their life? It's because he knows that they're going to be sustained to the end. They're going to be sustained to the end. This is a remarkable idea when you think about this particular church. Look what he says in verse 8. He's talking about the revealing of Jesus, and he says, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless. Underline that word. He will sustain you, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's amazing because we know for a fact that these guys were guilty. They were not guiltless. And Paul is reminding them, your relationship with God, listen, is not based on what you can do for him or what you will do for him. It's based on what Christ has done for you. And he will sustain you all the way to the end, not like hanging on by a thread, not like he's going to kind of get tired of you and somewhere along the way or it may go this way or that way. He will sustain you all the way to the end guiltless. 
And if you want to know how guilty people can be sustained as guiltless people, just jot down on your notes 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's how. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made the one who knew absolutely no sin to be our sin. He took our sin and put it on his son at the cross. Why? So that in Jesus we could become the righteousness of God. He sees you through Christ. He doesn't see you as guilty. He sees you as guiltless. And Paul says to these people, look, I'm grateful for you because I know this. Despite all the ups and downs in this church, Jesus is going to sustain you to the end guiltless. Not because of what you're going to do, but because God's faithful. Look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, when God called you, you weren't worthy of that calling. But he called you into fellowship with his son. Today, you're not worthy of that calling. But he's faithful to the calling he's placed on your life. Next week, you're not going to be worthy of that calling. But God will be faithful to what he's done in your life. Paul explains this later in chapter 1. Look what he says starting in verse 26. Consider your calling. And if you like to make notes in your Bible, you circle that word calling in verse 26. And you draw a little line over to verse 9 and you circle the word called. And you say, hey, look, he's talking about the same thing. God's calling on our life. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul's thankful for this church, right? What does it mean for us? How do we apply it to our lives as we think about being thankful people. Let me give you two suggestions. Suggestion one, instead of just thanking God for the people who are in our lives, we should thank God for how his grace has changed the people who are in our lives. Okay, it's one thing to say thank you for my family, thank you for this person. It's another thing to do what Paul does here and to thank God for those people because of how God's grace has played out in their lives in particular. And look, I don't want to suggest to you that it's bad or God's like disappointed when you say, thank you for my family. I just want you to think about being thankful and I want you to understand it's very easy for us to take the gifts that God gives us and to make them the object of our thanksgiving instead of God and his grace. So let me give you two examples of what this might look like in my life, okay? It would be one thing for me to say, God, thank you for giving me a patient wife. He did, and I need it, okay? So that would be good. Thank you, God, for giving me a patient wife. But very easily, as I pray that prayer, I could begin to put my wife at the center saying I'm thankful for her. When here's the reality, left to herself, she's not a patient person. She's patient because of God's grace in her life, that God has saved her from her sin and God is changing her into who he wants her to be. 
And so instead of just saying, thank you, God, that you gave me a patient wife, you turn around and you say, thank you, God, that you are working in her life so that she is exactly what I need, somebody who's patient. It's not her that's done it. It's God that's done it in her. And I'm not just focusing on the gift and how it benefits me, but I'm focusing on the giver and what he's done. Let me give you another example. It would be good for me, and I do this from time to time, to stop and to say, God, thank you for this church that I get to pastor. I don't mean this building, I mean you people. Thank you, God, for these people that I get to pastor. That would be a good thing for me to pray. And it, it would be an honest thing. I do pray that. I'm thankful for this church. But as I pray that prayer, if that's all I say, thank you that I get to pastor this church, thank you this is a great church to pastor, it can very easily turn in, for me, to a comparison game where I say, man, I know a buddy who pastors over in Corinth and his church is a mess. And I am so grateful I don't have to pastor that. Thank you that I'm here and it's easy and these folks are nice and they don't treat me bad. And very subtly in my prayer of thanksgiving, I'm beginning to focus on who? Me. Because I get the benefit, because I get something good. And maybe a better prayer, not that this is a bad prayer, but maybe a better prayer, a truer picture of thanksgiving would be to say this, God, thank you for your grace and the lives of the people at Emmanuel so that they're a joy to pastor and to lead. Left to themselves, they're just like Corinth. They're just like the other churches down the road. But because you have done and continue to do a work in their life, because you have been gracious to them, they're a joy for me to pastor, and I'm grateful for that. Look, Paul had a realization. And the realization that Paul had is that he was using Paul, God was using Paul for the good of the church in Corinth, but he was also using the church in Corinth for the good of Paul. And that's my second thought of application I want to give you. We'll end with this. Instead of thanking God for the easy people in our lives, we should also, also thank him for the difficult people in our lives. I don't think there's any question that Paul's favorite church was the church in Philippi. In January, we're going to begin a series through the book of Philippians. And we're going to see Paul doesn't really have anything negative to say to these folks. He just wants them to keep on keeping on exactly like they're doing it. And he's thankful for them. You guys have sustained me. You've helped me. You've sent me money. We're partners in the gospel. He's thankful for them. It's just an easy church. It was an easy relationship. And he didn't have that with Corinth. And I know myself and I know a lot of you and I think it's easy for us to look around at the Philippi people in our life and to be thankful for those people. God, I'm thankful you put this person in my life. I enjoy them. They're kind to me. They're nice. It's easy. But Paul is at a point in his life where he realized, I'm also thankful for the difficult people. Not just for Philippi, but for Corinth. And he realized, God is using me, the Apostle Paul, for the good of this church, but he's also using this church for the good of Paul. And there's people in your life like that. There's people you need to be thankful for. Not because they make your day rosy, but because God wants to use you in their life for their growth. And here's the difficult part to realize. God is using them in your life for your growth. And when you get that understanding of what God's doing through his people and in his people, I think it helps you to be a truly thankful person.
So to that end this morning, I want to pray for us. Let's pray. Father, help us to be thankful. We thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your spirit that inspired these words and has preserved these words and even this morning applies these words to our hearts. We're thankful for the many blessings you've poured into our lives. But Father, we pray this morning that you would guard our hearts against being selfish even in our thanksgiving, against focusing on the gift more than we focus on the giver. Father, as we think about people in our life that we're thankful for, help us to remind ourselves that your grace has made them who they are. Help us to remind ourselves that even the difficult people in our lives, we ought to give thanks for so that you can use us in their life and you can even use them in ours. And all of it, we want you to receive the glory. We want people to be pointed to Christ. And so we pray all of these things in his name this morning. Amen.